0: So last week, Pastor Benji mentioned that he loves sourdough, and I know a couple of you already gave him sourdough. That was spectacular, by the way. By the time he had left the building, he had some sourdough with him. If I remember right, kudos to those of you who were involved in that. When, when I moved to San Luis Obispo as a junior hire, I hated sourdough. Hated. It was one of the bad things about San Luis Obispo, in my opinion. Now granted, I was looking for reasons not to enjoy San Luis. I moved from Los Angeles, which to me uh, was the best city in the world. My favorite city, by the way, is is Santa Maria. Some of you have heard me mention that before. It's a nice blend of the two places that I've lived, Los Angeles and San Luis Obispo. But uh, I still think Los Angeles is the best big city in the world. It has Disneyland. I know there are some others that have Disneyland, but it's not the same. We have the original. That's my wife Tiffany and I many years ago. I think that was 2009. It was freezing that day. Uh, it was the winter and we actually had our winter jackets from Hume Lake with us. Uh, that's the one I have worn for the last 21 years or whatever. Uh, I'm not kidding. Every single kid that's gone with me to, youth, to winter camp has seen me in that jacket the whole weekend. But uh, we love Disneyland, And so, working with kids and loving, working with students and loving Disneyland, we found ourselves two years ago in the spring 2018 with Orchid Academy's choir because our son was in it, and they had a a festival down there, a competition, and part of it is everybody got to go to Disneyland the next day. So we were walking around with a bunch of students that we just met. We knew our kid for sure, but we... Just met a bunch of the others, or we had seen them throughout the year, got to know them a little bit with choir, but hadn't spent a lot of time with them. And it was encouraging but also challenging because along or throughout the day, a couple of them made the comments from time to time that we were relationship goals, that that we had the relationship they were looking forward to later in life. Now, granted, when you start your relationship making the cover of Modern Bride. I know you recognize Tiffany. That actually is me. Probably a little harder time seeing me in that picture. But when you start your relationship that way, it's not that surprising that you make it on relationship goals. Just kidding. That's not actually a cover of Modern Bride. That's from Knott's Berry Farm when we were just dating. And my sister-in-law, knowing exactly what she was doing, mind you, just dating, challenged us to take the picture uh, and pick that one for us. And if you know me, that's not actually much of a challenge. It was a, hey, let's go for that. Uh, so I think it was two, three months into our dating experience. We landed on that. But here's our actual picture. Since it's Val renewal Sunday, that one is from our wedding uh, album. And again, you might recognize her, but I promise you that actually is me in that picture, hair and all. But we were walking around with some students at Disneyland, one of our favorite places, and I mentioned it was encouraging and affirming because there were students that don't know Christ but were seeing in us something they wanted. And I know our struggles as a marriage, so I can point to plenty of times where I won and she lost out. But they saw something that was appealing to them. A weird couple that was willing to hang out with a bunch of teenagers they didn't know walk around Disneyland all day, buy root beer, Uh, floats or whatever at the the saloon that's there, and they saw in us something down the road they wanted. So they dubbed it relationship goals. Now, granted, teenagers don't always have the highest standards. I won't tell you who else they might dub as relationship goals because it doesn't always match up. But those moments remind me of a couple things. Our relationships ought to be appealing to the world. Whether it's marriage, or family, or friendship, or coworkers, or coaching, or competing on the softball team that you're a part of in the rec league, or whatever you're doing, neighbors. There ought to be a fingerprint of Christ in our relationship that the world looks at and is attracted to, even if they don't understand it. And scripture certainly has plenty of relationship reminders that I think support that idea. That the world should see how we relate to each other at church, and in every other capacity, and say, "I don't know about Christ, but I want that." And if Christ is how I get that, I need to I need to follow up on that and find out how that makes a difference. We're going to look at some of those in Hebrews thirteen. As the author of Hebrews turns in chapter 13, we won't even get to all of them today. Your notes probably are wrong. I was hoping to get all the way through verse 9, which still isn't the whole chapter. And I'm, for, the, for your sake and for the sake of the vow renewal later, I decided to chop off the back half. Because I'd be here until 3 o'clock. We'd have couples walking up on stage and I'd just roll into my next set of notes. For what was going on, if I was doing all nine, you can ask our students, I would do that. But Hebrews 13, 1 through 4. And we'll, we'll stop it at that today. Hebrews 13, 1 through 4. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We don't like that last part, but it's still included in the verse, and so we'll cover it today. But before we walk or talk through the passage, you need to know what precedes it. So those verses that Pastor Greg read, 12, 28, and 29, again, this is right before 13, 1 through 4. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I'd encourage you a couple things. You can talk to my students. They might remember this. We briefly talked about it this past week. That actually is pointing to a couple things in the Old Testament that we glance over because it's in the meticulous parts acceptable worship, consuming fire. Go back to Leviticus 10 and read that. Go back to the context of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and 19, and read what's going on because I think the author of Hebrews is is pulling on that. I I think he's got a little bit of a, not foreshadowing, but a look back at some things that the nation of Israel would have been familiar with. And he says that, and then he rolls, interestingly, right into relationship verses. Besides those passages, I'd encourage you to take the time to read through all of Hebrews or at least through chapter 11 and 12 this week. You might even take the time to go back to Pastor Benji's sermon series on Hebrews if you remember that. You probably don't have it memorized. So you might go find a couple things, especially if the book of Hebrews leaves you with lots of questions as it does for many people. But the author of Hebrews takes 10 to 11 chapters... To explain theology, it's a little bit like Romans that way. Romans, the first three quarters is theology. It's the gospel. And then it turns to holy living. Hebrews, very similarly, 10 to 11 chapters talking about theology. And then in chapter 12 and 13, it turns to how we live in light of that theology. And chapter 13 is an explanation of living holy as we focus on Christ. As we look to his example And as chapter 12 points out, because we're not dead yet, in our fight against sin, though we struggle, it hasn't cost us our life yet. We can still persevere and endure and struggle a little more. But specifically, in 12, 28, and 29, the author points out that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's secure and lasting. And then he says to invest in relationships. Because that kingdom can't be shaken. There's not going to be a dismantling or relegation of that kingdom like the British Empire experienced. There's going to be no fall of Rome in our future of the eternal kingdom. Nor do we need to fear being on the wrong side of history. We know the outcome. And we already live in some of the realities of what he's done to ensure that. And so our relationships ought to reflect that unshakable kingdom. And so with reverence and awe and as an unacceptable offering of holiness, the author is going to turn to remind us to be mindful of our relationships. So let's look at verse 1 specifically for a minute. Let brotherly love continue. This is a challenge that we need to work at creating and keeping and repairing love within the church among Christians. And it isn't a guarantee. Plenty of churches have, crum- have crumbled because they've forgotten that this is the new command, that isn't really a new command, that we love one another. Scripture says this will be our hallmark that Christ in us his fingerprint prints on us the evidence of the holy spirit in us will be obvious in our relationships with each other but we have to work at it. We can't just sit back. Like a marriage it is not difficult to have a healthy marriage but you must work at it constantly. If you don't, it will crumble and deteriorate. You cannot take it for advantage. And the same is true of our relationships within this room and with other Christians that are not in this room. And the Bible talks about this a lot because it isn't easy. It isn't guaranteed. We need to actively work at it. That goes from saying hello to the new and not, new, not so new faces around you. If you don't know somebody's name at church, find it out. Don't be embarrassed. Just admit it. And you don't get to be offended, especially if it happens today, by the way. If somebody forgets your name, just tell them your name. How many of you struggle to remember names that you haven't used in the last year? I'm the worst at this. I'm the opposite of Greg. Greg will know your name or he'll butcher it and somehow you'll love him all the more for it. I, in high school, I used to make a big deal out of this. I used to forget and mix up my best friend's names. I'm like the parent who runs through the entire list, gets to the hamster, and finally gets the right kid's name when they're talking to their kid. I can't get anybody's name right, even people I know, so don't be offended when I get your name wrong. I call everybody just the general name, partly for that reason and partly just it's me. So again, you don't get to be offended. You don't get to be offended if somebody else says, you know what? I have to admit, your name's not coming back to me right now. I know it. I'm embarrassed. You can even start that way. Or don't admit that, but at least say hi and act like you know their name. (laughs) Pray for them. Even not knowing their name, God knows. Pray for them. But say hello, it starts with that, and it goes all the way to what Pastor Benji has been talking about the last couple weeks. Confessing sin and asking forgiveness. And it's all of the little things in between. It's rather than being offended or being offensive, working to repair relationships. Rather than being alone, it's leaning into relationships through small groups and Sunday school classes. And maybe even when somebody asks you to go to lunch after the service, rearranging your schedule to go with them. You don't get to be offended if they say no, by the way. But it's doing it when you don't feel like it because you recognize that it matters. Maybe it's asking somebody to go to lunch when you never do that. By the way, that's so much easier when it happens in a Sunday school class then when you just randomly turn around to the person sitting behind you and was either fortunate or unfortunate that day, whichever way you want to look at it, and you're just like, you want to go to lunch today? That's a little too awkward. But if you get to know each other, it'll become natural to spend time. And certainly there are days when you need to go back on a Sunday and rest and Sabbath. But sometimes Sabbath needs to include somebody else. And especially as we've talked about marriage Today with the vow renewal and in the, in the, over the summer when Pastor Greg was looking at it, married and families, the singles in our community need to be invited out to lunch. They're wanting to be invited out to lunch, to be brought into that community that sometimes their singlehood reminds them they're on the outside of. And singles, you are not on the outside of. Don't let that happen. We save family for Fellowship and Fall Festival on purpose here at Grace. It's our family, it's this family. You may go home and not have a family per se, but the answer is you do. You're just living in a different house from them. So don't miss out on those moments. Brotherly love means pulling into them. It also means not just talking to your best friend, but connecting with the new person or the person sitting alone But in addition to that, it means rather than sitting alone scattered across the room, maybe it's sitting near other people so you're one row away instead of 20 or 30. If you came in this morning, you might have seen the islands scattered throughout the sanctuary. We need to be more like the Caribbean and less like the Pacific. Here's the Caribbean, they're all smashed together. The Caribbean has 7,000 islands squished into a little more than a million square miles. The Pacific, on the other hand, even though it has three to four times as many islands, about 25,000, it has 60 times as much space, just under 62,500,000 square miles. Sometimes sanctuary and churches look more like this picture than the one before it. And we need to push into each other. This isn't saying, however, brotherly love, let brotherly love continue. It's not saying that the church owes you a best friend. A loving family, yes, but best friends are a different matter. There's clicking points that come with best friends. There's time that comes with them. And the church never, according to scripture, owes you a best friend. I hope it happens. But it doesn't promise you that. So if that's what you're looking for, you will eventually leave grace and the next church you land at and the one you land at after that because you haven't found something the Bible never promised you, but you're convinced it did. It promised you family. Family loves even though they're fighting. So do best friends. But family loves even though they're fighting. Your relationship may not be as warm and fuzzy as you think it ought to be, but Scripture's not promising warm and fuzzy. Scripture's promising family, that I love you and care about you, even if I don't know your name because you sit on the opposite side of the sanctuary or go to a different service. But I see you driving by in the parking lot, and I wave, and I know that you're that crazy distant uncle or aunt that a love exists. That's family. Nor, by the way, is it commanding others to love and serve you the way you insist, as opposed to how they offer or are able to help At least a couple times a year we have somebody come into the office that we don't know, they don't attend Grace, and they look at us and they say that we're not living out biblical standards because we aren't giving them whatever they demand. And, of course, we have pointed them to all of the resources that we have to help them out, whether it's the Good Sam Shelter or Central Coast Rescue Mission or Salvation Army or Father's Freezer or something else. And they say, no, the Bible said you have to do this. The answer is, no, it didn't. He so said, we have to love you. But that's a different thing than what you're asking. You don't get to insist when God's provided help and you just don't want it. Speaking of helping others, Hebrews 13 verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We're not talking about showing the love to those I'm sorry, we're now talking about showing love to those in need that you don't know. Hospitality to a stranger. But before you pick up a hitchhiker and let them sleep in your kid's top bunk, there's a difference between hospitality and stupidity. There's a difference, as I mentioned before, between hospitality and doing everything someone says you must. Partner with Central Coast Rescue Mission. Be a part of CASA. Get connected and helping out and supporting CareNet. Buy someone lunch and respond to that extra giving request from a missionary that you already support. Our missionary for the week, Ruth and Scott Millar, Church Planning in Toronto. They may know somebody that you can help, but they don't have the resource you have to help them. And they send a request, and you feel the Holy Spirit telling you, This one. Respond to this one. You know them. You support them. They have a need that you can help them meet. That is exactly what Scripture is talking about. Hospitality, welcoming strangers into grace and the gospel. It's meeting that person that's sitting in the row behind you or across from you that's new. And your Sunday school group is going to lunch later and you invite them to join you. Maybe even on your dime. Can I pay for your lunch? We would love to have you join us. Partner with those things. However, giving your account information to the missionary that you don't know, but you happen to find their, their email in your clutter file, that's not hospitality. That's unwise. Don't do that. Don't get sucked into that. That's not the Holy Spirit moving you, I don't think. If you're convinced it is, by all means, roll the dice. But that's a scam. We all know that. I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to direct you to support a scam or the prince that sends you an email promising you money if you'll only give them your account. God's not providing you money that way. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares There's an added incentive besides generosity and love for our neighbors. It's entertaining angels. And I might be the only one because of working with youth that long. But anybody I think that's been in a youth group in the 1990s immediately thinks of the newsboys and the song, Entertaining Angels. It goes through my head every time I read this passage. If you don't know what it is, feel free to look it up. And for the rest of your life, it will wonderfully haunt you. (laughs) That's crazy. Not the haunting, the entertaining angels. Sorry, that's crazy. That you might actually bump into an angel, and God wants you to help him out, and you'll be blessed by that. It's cool, but don't go nuts with this. We sometimes get very weird in our angelology. That's the theology of angels. It really is that simple, angelology. But though it's simple, we go crazy on that. I talk with our students all the time, so we put Victorian I have one of these We put Victorian women up on our Christmas trees as the tree topper, and they got wings. That's not what an angel looks like, either in its power, which is a mighty warrior, or in its hospitality moment, where you don't recognize them, you just think it's a person. It's not Cupid, a cherubim, a fat, naked person flying around shooting people. That's not an angel. So don't go weird. Don't go weird in your angelology. but do realize this. There may be a point that you bump into an angel. And it definitely could have been angels that you encountered on your Grand Canyon vacation, but they were probably just European 20-somethings that are staying at a hostel. Either way, you should help them out if you feel like God's directing you to do that. Maybe you provide them with a three times as much as it should cost fast food meal, at the Grand Canyon because they know you're an hour away from food. But again, it could be angels. And that's a bonus, something to to consciously think of. Maybe I'm helping somebody God has sent that is an angel not even just a person. But even if they're just a person, that should be sufficient. They bear the image of God. And God has called us to be people who show hospitality. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Remember those who are in prison. Here's what grammatically it's getting at. Remember those who are in prison like you were chained to them. If you went and read a good commentary on it or looked in at the Greek on that, that's, that's the emphasis. That's the picture that's drawn out. As if your chain next to them. Remember those who are mistreated like your own body felt the bruises. And this is particularly talking about Christians that are being arrested for their faith. Remember martyrs as if the pain they're feeling is a pain you feel. And if their imprisonment is one that you share with them. That's what verse 3 is saying. Now, Having sympathy and sharing grace with those who reach rock bottom is never wrong, even if rock bottom was their own creation. But again, that's primarily talking about Christians who were dependent on the church, sometimes even for their food. And Christians in that time period had the dilemma of, if I take them food, I'm identifying with them and might be chained next to them taking bread to my brother in prison might mean somebody now has to bring bread to me. But certainly, if you are involved in a prison ministry around here or a ministry that goes into juvenile hall, this verse is talking to that too. That we ought to be people that care for those who are at the bottom of down and out. Even if it's their own fault that we remember them. That we among all of society Have sympathy and grace for them. We ought to bless the world and our community that way. And then it turns to marriage. I'm going to break this up into three parts. But it turns to a marriage picture. We will have our vow renewal later. It's something we're celebrating at grace. We want to be for what God is for. And this is one of those things. Let marriage be held in honor among all. How we talk about it. How we think about it. How we joke about it. If we ignore and undermine it or we celebrate and support it, it all matters. And we need to make sure that our marriages are God-honoring and healthy. But we also need to make sure our relationship with marriage itself is God-honoring and healthy. I was listening to Preston Sprinkle's podcast, Theology in the Raw, And he did an episode with Lori Krieg recently, and she makes the point, this is a paraphrase, not a quote, but she makes the point that we need to revisit and revitalize our theology of marriage and sex and singlehood and divorce and gender and romance. Our cultures created turmoil in all of those areas. And even when our statements are truthful, we have not always been gracious in our response to them or even biblical in our response to those areas. We have a quick statement, but we don't know what we believe, and we certainly can't explain why we believe it. And sometimes when we get the right answer for the two of those, we forget to be gracious at the same time. If we can't explain what and why in a gracious way, being correct is insufficient. 1 Corinthians 13 points that out right before it gets into a passage of love. It calls us a resounding gong and a clanging symbol, an annoyance. If we can't be gracious with truth, the truth will not be heard. They will simply push us away. But we need to deepen our theology in regard to marriage, in regard to romance, in regard to singlehood, in all of those areas that relate to marriage and romance. We need to get better at knowing what scripture says and why and wrestling with that and understanding it. It's a terrific podcast. I encourage you to go check it out uh, if you're interested in those things. It'll be linked in my notes when this lands online. Let marriage be held in honor among all, married or not. God created it and authorized it and endorsed it. I will say that again later today around five o'clock. 515, probably. God put marriage in place. But we need to do more than just be married. We need to understand what marriage means. And that includes sometimes not being married. 1 Corinthians 7. Embracing singlehood and celebrating singlehood that honors God just as much as marriage. 13, 4, verse, or B, the middle section. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is the next part. This is the romance of marriage. It might not be popular, but God insists on insists on abstinence, fidelity, and biblical boundaries regarding marriage. Purity rings are great, but if they only push sin a little down the road, there's little spiritual value to them. The statistics say purity rings delay sexuality about two years and that's it. I'm not saying don't do that. I would love to talk to any family with teenagers or about to be teenagers about Purity Rings. There are some things about it I love and some things about it I don't like along the lines of I kiss, marriage, dating, goodbye that I think we need to deepen our theology in, to deepen what we mean, not to lessen it at all, but to expand it and make it better. So I would love to talk to you about that, but Purity Rings, Not a bad idea, but if all they do is just push it down the road some, that's not the point. Singlehood is celebrated in 1 Corinthians 7. I just mentioned that, but countless hookups wasn't what it had in mind. Taking your time in a relationship when you're a child of a broken marriage, or anybody by the way, but in particular a child of broken marriage is an excellent idea because you've seen... The difficulties when a marriage falls apart, but you need to know that both you and your kids will feel and experience the same pain through broken cohabitation as you did when your parents fought and finally separated. That's not honoring marriage, it's just limiting it to a piece of paper and a legal process. And we need to be about more than that, not less than that. The golden and silver anniversaries are definitely worthy of recognition but not so much if they hide a pornography addiction or an open relationship or a lifetime of disdain and isolation and hurt and romantic manipulation in a relationship that God wanted so much more of. This is all part of the marriage bed being undefiled. God does not promise a thrilling Hollywood romance. Throw that image out of your mind. It will kill your marriage. But if you honor him in your romantic relationships or your singlehood, you will find something so much better. If we will honor him by what he says about marriage and singlehood, we will be better off not missing out. 13.4, the last part. C. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Those two words include all activity outside the boundaries of biblical marriage. You can wrestle with that as you need to, but that's what this verse is getting at. And, by the way, it's God rejecting our culture's insistence that he stay out of our bedroom. He has no part in that. He won't accept it. You can tell it to him all you want to, and he just looks at you and refuses for that to be correct. It's a big deal because he says it is. This is actually the second time in chapters 12 and 13 that the author addresses sexual immorality. Chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, he brings it up the first time in this context. It's a big deal because our culture says it is. That romance is a big deal. A student once asked me somewhat confrontationally, why we always talk about this subject? And my answer was, first, we don't. We actually don't talk about it. We rarely talk about it. Second, We talk about it whenever Scripture discusses it because that's when we should talk about it. If we're going through Scripture and Scripture brings it up, we need to talk about it. And third, we talk about it because you, the individual, or my students, ask about it all the time. We talk about it because you talk about it. We aren't making a big deal out of it. Our culture is obsessed with romance. It fails at it miserably, but it's obsessed with it. Humanity makes a big deal out of it, and so the church must talk about it. Another reason is it's a big deal because it has a big impact on our lives. Especially when we ignore God's standards and then encounter the ramifications of cozying up to sin. It always, no matter what the sin is, has a big impact on our lives. And so in Hebrews 13.4, God declares himself both king and judge, even of the bedroom. Now fortunately, and if you've tuned me out, please tune back in right now. If any talk about romance and sexuality makes you just push Scripture and the preacher aside, please tune back in right now because this is the most important theme in Scripture along with God is God. Fortunately, He's a gracious God. The context of Hebrews has already pointed this out. We have to remember that it's said in Hebrews, which makes it clear that it's talking to people who are welcome, to confidently approach God. The God who is a consuming fire we get to walk up the aisle to and up the steps to the person that's conducting the worship ceremony and say, Dad, that's a true story. It's happened in my life multiple times. I've had several of my kids walk up and meet me on the stage in front of you all. And that's the picture of God. That's the picture with God, that we're a child and we just walk up to his presence and it doesn't matter what's happening. Father, I'm here. Even in my sin, even in the awkwardness of not recognizing the moment, I'm here and God's response every time, no matter how messy or sinful is, I know and I love it. Now come to me. And there are certainly times, just as with a parent, that'll pick his kid up and say, You fell in a dirty puddle, didn't you? (laughs) Let's get you cleaned up. But what he never does is say, get out of my presence. I don't want you if we're his child. Never. Hebrews has already made that clear. Let us confidently approach the throne of God, the throne of grace. However, the context also in chapter 12 has just discussed God disciplining his children because he loves them. And we need to wrestle with but embrace both of those concepts. No matter how sinful I have been, God wraps me in his arms. And most assuredly also when I am sinful, God will discipline me because it's for my best. Those are not fighting each other. They are both wonderful truths about our great and glorious and mysterious God because he does that perfectly. So grace... Let's make sure we're a community that lives brotherly love and shows hospitality in a way that catches the attention of our neighbors and our coworkers. A place that meets needs wherever God draws attention and resources to them. A place that's invested to the lives of others. A place that's quick to show grace to an offense. And a place full of people that are quick to ask forgiveness when we recognize we've hurt someone. A place where confession is comforting rather than terrifying. What if church was the first place we went with tough questions in faith, rather than one we hide from? What if church was the safest place for someone's coming out story? What if church was our refuge when our marriage was crumbling and falling apart, and nothing like Hebrews thirteen four? What if church is the community we turn to in despair, rather than the bridge or bottle of pills to end everything in our despair? This is what church ought to be. I don't mean that we ignore truth. Even in these moments, I mean that we embrace so tightly that there is no risk of falling away from God or the church in our toughest moments. I had to pause right now, sorry. That sentence broke me when I typed it out. When I got to the word "tight," it shook me in my office. What if our embrace, even in the midst of sin, was so tight, we couldn't fall away from each other? And we didn't want to. And we certainly weren't going to fall away from grace. And the reality of some of our messiness is we feel the opposite. Whether or not it's true, that's another discussion, but we at least sometimes feel that and attribute it to the church. Let's be the place that understands and celebrates God-honoring marriage and singlehood. A place that may not have perfect marriages, we certainly don't, but is working toward holy ones. A place that speaks well of marriage, even when we're in the barbershop and the beauty salon. And those two places do not have a high view of marriage. And there's plenty of other places that join them in that. A place that values sexuality so much that we respect God's guidelines pertaining to it in a place that neither pushes people out of a struggling marriage nor rushes singles into one. No matter what, let's pay attention to Scripture's reminders about relationships that we would all the more worship God, not just through music, but how we interact with each other in the pews in the hallways and at lunch afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty, mighty God, a God whose embrace is that tight, that we cannot fall away from you, that we are secure in your hands. And Lord, help us as a a family of yours, your sons and daughters. to show that same love to our spiritual siblings. That we would bring grace where there is pain. That we would celebrate together grace where there is joy. And that we would honor you and worship you in the way that we relate to each other. That the world would take notice and run to you Because they saw something they want and they need. And we point to you as the only answer. We praise your name. Amen.